Last week we uh, took a look at Israel's missionary mandate in the call and commission of Abraham and his seed. We saw that God called Abram out of a pagan setting into another place, another land, another another uh, spiritual condition, into a relationship with God so that he could give witness to all the people of the earth. And then we saw from Galatians that uh, we, like Abraham, have the same mandate. We're, we are the seed of Abraham, called to a special place. The place where you find yourself today is like Canaan was to, to Abram. That's the most strategic place on the face of the earth in which to give witness. Secondly, we, uh, we learned that witness grows out of worship. Our, uh, our responsibility is to know God and to make him known. Wherever Abram went, he uh, pitched his tent and he built his little altar of, of rocks and he warmed his heart there in the presence of the Lord. And then he went out into this cold world uh, that he lived in and uh, he drew others out of the cold to the warmth of his fire. They, they came to worship his Lord. And uh, that's the way we go about witness. It comes as a result of knowing God and having him change our hearts and warm our, uh, uh, our being. And then he sends us out into the world to share that warmth. Now this morning we want to talk about a, another element in witness. Witness grows out of wisdom. And uh, we need to begin with Exodus 19. So when you turn to that passage, Exodus 19. If you can find Genesis, you're well on your way to finding Exodus. It's the next book. Chapter 19. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day they came to the desert of Sinai. Verse 2. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you were to say to the house of Jacob and what you were to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession, although the whole earth is mine. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a, and a holy nation. These are the words you were to speak to the Israelites. Moses tells us that uh, 90 days after the Exodus, they arrived at the base of Mount Sinai, and this first instruction is given to them there. Israel became a, became a nation in their passage through the Red Sea. While, while they were in, in Egypt, they were an aggregation of slaves. They came through the Red Sea with Moses, and they became a congregation, a nation, a state. And as uh, they made their way up the uh, eastern side of the Red Sea down to Mount Sinai at the tip of the uh, Sinai Peninsula, they were taking their first steps in, in statehood, making a lot of mistakes, falling down. Uh, doing a, a very poor job of the whole thing, complaining and moaning and wishing they could go back, and uh, really not to behaving as they should have behaved. But God says, I bore you along on eagles' wings. While they were taking these first steps and failing miserably, God was bearing them up and giving them uh, another try. It's a beautiful figure. We talked about this a year or so ago when we... We talked about this uh, passage. It's a symbol of grace and enablement. I'm told, I've never seen the process, but I'm told that mother eagles teach their eaglets to fly by edging them out of the nest. The, the eaglets get so large, they can't stay in the nest, so the mother hen keeps crowding them until they get to the edge, and they fall over the edge. And here they are plummeting through space, flapping their little arms like crazy, and they don't have the capacity to fly. And just before they auger in, 
the, the mother, the mother eagle swoops down underneath them and catches them on her back and carries them up for another try. Must be very distressing to the eaglet. <laughs> Just soon pass the whole thing up. But it's a beautiful picture of grace and the way God keeps bearing us up and giving us additional uh, tries. Never gives up on us. And he says, I brought you to myself picture again of how it all begins. It all begins by centering our life upon God, worshiping Him, knowing Him, loving Him, carrying His presence with us through the day. It's out of that worship, that relationship, that walk with God that we give witness. And he goes on with this conditional clause, and that's when the whole thing gets a little bit difficult. He says in verse 5, If you obey me fully... And keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It's the iffiness of that promise, I think, that disturbs most people. They think, ah, it's just what I thought. When it comes right down to it, the Old Testament is full of law. There, there are notes of grace here and there, but really what God wants to do is lay the law on us. And here's another example of it. He says, uh, I'm like a mother eagle who bears you up. But you've got to keep my law or you can't be my people. Now, you need to understand that he is not here talking about their election as a nation. Their relationship to God is not dependent upon obedience to the covenant, the covenant that follows. Beginning in chapter 20, there is the uh, statement of the Ten Commandments and then the further explanation and description and amplification of those, uh, those commandments through the rest of the Pentateuch. That's the covenant that he's talking about. And he is not saying if you keep the law, then your election is sure. You'll continue to be my people. That's not the point at all. He's saying if you don't keep the law, you will negate your witness to the nations. I have a unique role for you to play among the nations. And if you don't walk with me, you will negate that witness. You see, the promise that God made with Abraham was unconditional. We didn't talk about uh, this passage last week. I intended to and ran out of time. Um, but after the Abrahamic covenant, the passage that we looked at last week in Genesis 12, there was a reaffirmation of that covenant. God said, I will make your name great, Abraham. I will bless you. I will make you a great nation. Through you, all the nations of the world will, will be blessed. Now go and become a blessing to those nations. And then he, he ratified the covenant with a procedure that was well known in that culture. And he divided a number of animals, killed the animals, sacrificed them, divided them. And that was a cultural procedure. That's the way all the people of the ancient world, or at least that part of the ancient world, ratified covenants. And then they, they walked together through the animals. And uh, most people feel that uh, the symbolism uh, is intended to convey... Uh, the idea of judgment on the person who breaks the covenant. If you, if you break the covenant, what happens to these animals will happen to you. In this case, the Lord condescended to a human uh, form of ratification. He divided the animals, and you would expect that he would walk arm in arm with Abram through the animals, but he didn't. He put Abraham to sleep as a symbol that it didn't depend on Abraham's faithfulness. God was going to see to it that Abraham became the man that God intended him to be. He would never cut Abraham off. The, the covenant with Abraham was, was as good as God's word. It was a sure thing. But uh, Abraham and his descendants could negate their witness if they did not keep the covenant. 
That's why this conditional clause is here. It has nothing to do with relationship. You need to see that. It has to do with effect on those around the nation of Israel. Now, three things. He says, if you keep the covenant, if you are my kind of people, three things will happen. First, he says, you will be my treasured possession. My treasured possession. Now, that's the phrase that the King James Version translates a peculiar people. And I can remember when I was a kid growing up thinking that aptly describes some of the Christians that I know. Some of the strangest people around were, uh, were so-called Christians. But actually, that, that, for that particular time, 7th century, that, 17th century, that wasn't a bad translation at all. Because in Elizabethan English, peculiar meant private property. It was taken from a French word that means private property. A special possession. Something that belongs to someone uniquely and not to anyone else. It's that idea. Um, as a matter of fact, this particular word in the ancient world was used to describe uh, jewelry and gold and silver, portable wealth. There, were, there, there was two types of wealth in the ancient world. There was the kind of wealth that was fastened to the ground, land and buildings. And then there was portable wealth, which normally was uh, some form of jewelry, pearls, some other form of precious stones. This is the word that's used. And that's what God is saying. All the world is mine. But you'll be my private treasure. You'll be a jewel. You'll be a pearl in the midst of all the other nations. Now that statement is made a number of times in the Old Testament. In Psalm 137, he says, Jacob is special. Israel is my treasured possession, uses this word. In Malachi 3.16, the prophet Malachi, after they came back from from Babylon, said those that uh, feared the Lord thought often about him, and their names were written in a book of remembrance before God. And he says... When I come, I will make up my jewels. That's the way the King James translates that. I will make up my jewels. Same word. As you were a child growing up in school, you probably, or Sunday school, you probably sang that song, When He Cometh, When He Cometh, to make up His jewels. I never knew what that was talking about until I realized that this verse lies behind that, that hymn. Israel was intended to be like a jewel with the light being reflected and refracted off of all of the facets of that, of that stone, exhibiting a special kind of beauty, a special winsomeness to the rest of the world. And you see what, uh, what Moses is saying? If, if you do what God calls you to do, then you'll have a special beauty in the eyes of the world. Now there's a second uh, promise that he makes. He says, if you keep my, co- my covenant, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. Now, uh, apparently, from the very beginning, it was God's intention that the entire nation of, of Israel function as priests. They bypassed that privilege. If you read on into the chapter, you'll discover that, that uh, God called the entire nation to gather at the foot of the mountain, and he said, purify yourself uh, for, this, uh, for this day of visitation and God came down from the mountain to speak to the people. They didn't want to talk to God. They were afraid of God. They didn't like the sight of the lightning and the thunder. And, and they, they, they shrank from this, uh, uh, this opportunity to meet God. And they sent Moses as their representative. 
So for a period of time, Israel's opportunity to function as priests was set aside. plan wasn't scuttled, wasn't jettisoned, but for a time, Israel was set aside to be renewed again, according to the New Testament, in the church. Now, it's from this passage that uh, the, the apostles and the others developed the idea of, of, a, of a, uh, a priesthood of all believers. We don't need a priest to stand between us and God. We're all priests. Now, the question is, what does a priest do? What does it mean to be a nation of priests? What do priests do in Israel? Well, they showed people how to come to God through the sacrificial system. That was the function of a priest. According to both the Old and New Testament, a priest offered up sacrifices. But it wasn't a matter of merely offering sacrifices day after day. It, just, it wasn't the ritual. It's far uh, more significant than that. The function of a priest was to let people know how to come to God through the sacrificial system. And I can envision in my mind some, some Gentile coming into Israel, some Canaanite or some Moabite, sensing something unique about the people of God and wanting it. And uh, coming to Israel and, and wanting to know how you know God. And someone says, well, uh, you see that little tent up there? Go up there and talk to the priest. He'll tell you. And uh, the man would, would find the priest. And the priest would come out to the door of the tabernacle and meet him. And he would say, all right, I tell you what you want, I want you to do. Go, uh, go find a lamb. A lamb without any blemish. A healthy lamb. We don't want one that's uh, marred in any way or sickly. Find a healthy lamb. And uh, bring it here to the to the uh, gate of the temple, the tabernacle, and I'll tell you what to do. And the man would find his lamb, and he would bring it to the priest. And the priest would say, Now, uh, I want you to lay your hands on the head of that lamb, lean all of your weight on the lamb, and confess your sins. Confess your, your rebellion against God. And then draw your knife across the neck of that animal and, and put it to death. And then the priest and the man would take the offering to the, take the lamb to the to the sacrificial altar, and they would offer up that lamb. In other words, the man would walk the priest would walk the man through the sacrificial process, so that the man would know how to come to God. Now, any knowledgeable priest in that day knew that the lamb was merely a symbol. He would he would say to the man who who came to worship, "Now look, I want you to understand." This lamb does not take away your sin. Way, way back, we were told that a man of promise is coming who would, uh, who would suffer and die for Israel. This lamb just symbolizes his coming. I don't understand how he's going to do it. All I know is that we're supposed to do this because it symbolizes the lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. This is a symbol. There's a greater reality. Now, you trust in the one that's coming. And he'll set you free from your sin. You see, priests taught people how to come to God through the sacrificial system. And it was Israel's privilege, all of them, to be priests. They set aside that privilege for a while, but the original uh, promise was that they would be a nation, a kingdom of priests. Now, there's a third thing that's said, conditioned upon their obedience. You will be a treasured possession... You will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, unfortunately, we have, we have made the word holy into an exclusively religious word. It wasn't originally. Both our English word holy, H-O-L-Y, and our English word holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, came from the same Anglo-Saxon root that meant 
W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy. So holiness is wholeness. Meant that originally in English, and it means that in the, in the Hebrew and Greek text, wherever the word comes. It means to be wholly devoted to God. Set apart to God. Distinctive and uniquely God's. Separated from the world. Unlike the world, very much like God. That's the idea of holiness. From this point on, there, there's a, a, a theology of holiness that, that develops you read on through the, the rest of the uh, Pentateuch. You get into the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 1. God says, be holy, because I am holy. And he spells out what that means. He says, when you build a house, be, be sure you put a railing on the top of the house, because you don't want people to fall off and get killed. Because God, God cares about people. When, we talked about this the other day. When you find somebody's lost ox, it's not finders keepers. You don't keep the ox, you give it back. When, when you glean the corners of your, when you glean your fields, you harvest your fields. Don't glean the corners out. Leave those for the poor people of the land. When you take a wife, you cannot throw her away and take her back and throw her away and take her back. You can't treat women like that. They're not chattel. And as you look through all of those laws, you begin to see how very much unlike the rest of the world Israel was. They were a holy people. They were devoted to God. They were uniquely God's. They were very much like God in the world, living out his character before all the, the pagan nations who did denigrate women, who treated women like trash, who did play finders keepers with other people's possessions, who didn't put parapets around their roof because human life was of very little value to them, who didn't care about people. You see, this holiness code was designed to show the people of the world what God was like and how very much unlike God the rest of the nations were. And then you come to the book of Deuteronomy. Will you turn to Deuteronomy 4, chapter 1? Deuteronomy 4.1. Hear now, Israel, the doctrines, the decrees. Thank you. In laws, I'm about to teach you. Follow them so that you may, may live, stay alive, is the idea. And may go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Do not add to what I command you and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. Uh, Deuteronomy is a second giving of the law. The, the name signifies that, that idea, the second law. Uh, it, it's not that, that Moses had to amend the law in any way. It's a, it's a restatement of the law for a new setting. Everything up to the book of Deuteronomy was given in the, at the foot of Mount Sinai or in the wilderness. Now they're on the plains of Moab, ready to come into the land. And, and Moses rehearses the law make some slight changes because they're moving into an urban setting rather than a, a, a rural desert setting. He's not reinterpreting the law. He's, he's applying the law to a different setting. He says all of these laws are necessary while you live in the land. That's the emphasis of the book of Deuteronomy. This is the way you live in the land. Because remember, the land was strategic. God did not merely pick out Canaan arbitrarily because he needed some place for Israel to live. The land of Canaan was located on the crossroad in the crossroads of the ancient world, on the major north-south and east-west trade routes, right through that part of the country, so that God's people could give witness to the nations as they traveled through the land of Canaan. 
Now, God says in the book of Deuteronomy, you are to be a holy people in the land. And as long as you're holy, you can stay in the land. If you're not holy, we'll have to take you out of the land. And he goes on in verse 3. You, you saw with your own eyes what the Lord did at Baal Peor. That story is told back in another portion of the Pentateuch. The Lord your God destroyed from among you everyone who followed the Baal of Peor. But all of you who held fast to the Lord your God are still alive today. It's a very vivid illustration of the principle. You'll be kept alive and you'll be kept in the land if you obey. If you don't, you'll lose your life and you'll be sent out of the land. See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully. Now listen. For, this is the reason why Israel was to be a holy nation. This will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. You see what he's saying? They could carry out their mediatorial function as a priest as people were drawn to them by their character. Uh, they would uh, note that they had compassion and mercy on the poor and on orphans and on widows, that they cared about those who did not have property on which they could raise their own food. They cared about personal safety. They cared about children. They loved women. They highly regarded them. And these nations would say how skillful these people are at life. That's the idea of wisdom. Wisdom in the Old Testament means skill at life. It's not a matter of intelligence, intellect, knowledge. It's applied information. It's skill. The capacity to make your way through life successfully. And because Israel knew the heart of God and listened to him and did what he asked them to do, because God, after all, understands how things work better than anyone, they would be known to the world as a wise and understanding people. And that would draw outsiders to Israel and they could function as priests to draw people on to God. Their witness would grow out of their wisdom. You see? Now I want you to turn to 1 Peter. Because 1 Peter 2 is Peter's commentary on the passage in Exodus 19 that we just read. You know, we taught through 1 Peter a year or so ago and I don't want to go back over the argument of chapter 2 again, except to say that he's contrasting those who take Abraham's message, his gospel, lightly with those who take it seriously. Remember, God promised Abraham that if, uh, if the nations took what he had to say seriously, then they would be blessed. If they did not, they would be cursed. And here he contrasts those who consider Jesus precious, that is valuable. They attribute worth to him, weight to what he did and what he says. They would be blessed. Others, he says, would stumble because they disobey the message. But you, he says in verse 9, I'm reading 1 Peter 2, 9. But you, in contrast to those above who disobey, are a chosen race. Now that's, a, that's an expression that's used in the Old Testament for Israel. Isaiah 43 and other places. You, Christians, you folks in the church to whom I'm writing, you are a chosen race, just as Israel was, a nation chosen out of all other nations to bless the people of the, of the earth. A royal priesthood. He's quoting from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which puts a little different sense to the word, a little different nuance. It's not merely that Israel was intended to be a kingdom of priests, but they were to be 
a group of king priests with authority and with that mediatorial function as well, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You see, it's just taken right off of Exodus 19. A people belonging to God, that's the peculiar people, the, the, the people that God has possessed, his private property. Uh, a people belonging to God so that, so that, so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's why God has blessed us. That's why he's given us so much. That's why he's enriched our lives. That's why he's called us to be his unique people. Called us out of the world into a fellowship with him. So that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so there will be no misunderstanding. He goes on in verse eighteen, uh, verse uh, 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Uh, you have to go back into the prophet Hosea to understand what he's talking about. Hosea had uh, had a, a couple of children. One he named Loami, not my people. Symbolic of God's rejection of Israel for a period of time. But God promises those who were not my people, that is Israel, that had been set aside and rejected because of their unbelief, will become once more my people. And, and here Peter makes it very clear that we are the people of God, you and me, the church. Not just this church, but the church all around the world. We're the people of God, part of this historic uh, thing, this continuum that, be, that began with Abraham. We're the people of God. All the way through the Old Testament, Israel is called the people of God, the people of God. Now we're the people of God. We're the messengers. We have the mandate, you see. He's called us to become a, a unique people. So we can declare his, his grace to the world. Now, I, I think Israel still has a, has a future. I think God has a plan for Israel. But for right now, we are the people of God. Called out of the world so we may declare the praises of him who called us. And then he spells that out in verses 11 and following. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world. We're not, we're not part of this world. We've been taken out of it. We're in it, but we're not of it. Abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Now listen to this. Live such good lives. Actually, it's the Greek word for beautiful. Live such beautiful lives among the, the non-Christians. I, the NIV has pagans. I don't like that at all. That's not the way the, the, the early church looked at, at unbelievers. They weren't pagans. They called them Gentiles. It's a symbolic reference to the fact that they were outside the, the covenant people. But they're not pagans. They're just non-Christians. Live such beautiful lives among non-Christians that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they'll never understand why we do what we do. They may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. One of these days, God's going to visit us again in the person of Jesus Christ. He's coming back, and when he comes back, there'll be a bunch of people who will stand before God and, and will acknowledge their oneness with him. Why? Because they saw your good deeds and it drew them to God. And they've come to the place now that they glorify God as you do. And they will on, on the day when God visits this, this planet. And then because the, the apostles never leave uh, much... Um, uh, they, they always tie the loose ends down. He gives us three 
spheres of relationship in which these beautiful deeds are to be manifest. Verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right, for it's God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. You know who the king was when Peter wrote those words? It was Nero. Most likely. It was anything but a benevolent uh, leader. The, one of the arch tyrants of, of history. Peter says, honor him. Pay taxes to him. And not only to the imperial authorities, the local provincial authorities pay honor and homage and respect to the federal authorities the Roman imperial the Roman emperors and also the local magistrates the Roman provincial governors which would mean that we have a responsibility not only to obey the federal government but the local authorities as well because by do- by so doing Peter says you'll put to silence the ignorance of of ungodly men. Because, you see, they don't honor the king. They, they're, they're highly critical. They dishonor him. They don't respect authority. Peter says, don't, don't let your freedom, you, you are free, you're not subject to anyone but God, but don't let that freedom become an opportunity for the flesh to have its fling. Submit yourself to the government. That means show them respect. And honor, because submission starts from within. And it's not only true of those on the highest levels of authority, it's true on the local level as well. There's a movement, unfortunately, it's gaining a great deal of, uh, of uh, popularity among Christians. The so-called constitutionalist movement, this idea that the, uh, that the Constitution is the ultimate authority. And because of the intent of the framers, the original authors of the Constitution, because that's been perverted somewhat on a local level, we don't have to pay any attention to local laws. We don't need to uh, observe no parking signs. We don't need to pay traffic tickets because according to the Constitution, these are, uh, this is a violation of our freedom. Nonsense, Peter says. Nonsense. You obey the local authorities. We, we, we have an opportunity in, in our country to make changes in the laws, but where the laws exist, even though they seem to be unfair seem to be in conflict with our Constitution. As long as they're not in conflict with a clear statement of the Word of God, we're to obey, and by so doing, we silence people around us who don't know God. So just the small things, our attitude toward our leadership, our willingness to pay taxes, our willingness to submit to local uh, laws and regulations, all of these indicate a godly character. Love the brotherhood of believers, he says. Fear God, honor the king. Those are all legitimate spheres of submission. And then he moves into the realm of employer and employee relationships. Here in, in this New Testament culture, first century culture, we're talking. he's talking about slaves and masters, but it translates into our culture as employer and employee relationships. Slaves, submit yourself to your masters. It's all right to even suffer unjustly because that's what Christ did for us, leaving us an example. 
He bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. If, if we are employ, employers, then we need to be concerned about our employees and not pay them minimum wages just uh, so we can enrich ourselves, you see. It's that little bit of difference that makes a great difference in the eyes of the, of the world. If we're employees, then we need to give our employers a full, hard day's worth of work and not rob him of time or rob him of money or, uh, or materials. He says that's important. That's the way we manifest the character of God in in the world. And then he he turns to the realm of the home. Chapter 3, verse 1. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without talk by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment only, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes, but it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and, and quiet spirit. If you're married to an honorary man and he doesn't know God, Peter says the, the way to win him, if he is to be won at all, is not through outward adornment. That, that may uh, attract, but it won't hold any man, not for very long. What will eventually win him is beautiful behavior. That's what he's saying. Not outward adornment, but inward adornment, which he specifies as a gentle and quiet spirit. And in case you're thinking that it's only women who, who should be gentle and quiet, I, I, I should make it clear that the New Testament elsewhere says those are also attributes of manhood. Gentle means meek, non-defensive. Quiet means restful, in contrast to being restless. So, you see, he's, just, he's elaborating this principle that he, that he spells out earlier in verses 11 and 12. If we live beautiful lives, there will be some non-Christians who are drawn to God and will glorify him on, on the day that, that God comes back to this to our earth. See, And the way a, a woman can win her non-Christian husband, if he's to be one at all, is not by slipping uh, Chuck Colson's book into his uh, satchel when he goes off to work or uh, putting four law booklets in his oatmeal or whatever. It, <laughs> Or pushing and shoving and trying to force this thing on him and talking all the time and nagging. It doesn't do any good. Peter says, don't do that. Just be meek. Be gentle. Be calm. Be restful. Don't have to talk much. Don't have to push. Don't have to nag. Wait for God to work. It's your beautiful behavior, he says, that will win him. If he's to be one at all, and, and, and just so you guys won't think that, that we get left out, in verse 7, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as a weaker party partner. Treat them with honor and respect. We live in a world where, where womanhood is denigrated, where, the, where the, the humor is mostly designed to put women down, where sex is dehumanized, and it's so easy for us to fall into that pattern of living when we're around people like that. Peter says, don't do it. Show honor to your wife. Never put her down. Don't criticize her. Don't belittle her. Don't ridicule her. Don't make fun of her. Don't hold her up to scorn. Don't embarrass her. Show her respect. We live in a world where people don't do that. The favorite indoor games is to ridicule womanhood. Get a bunch of men together. It's what they do. Pieces don't do that. Honor her. Respect her. 
And if we do that, if we live wisely, if we live skillfully, there will be many, he says, who will glorify God on the day of visitation. Witness grows out of wisdom, you see. Now, Jesus made it even clearer in the Beatitudes. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are those that are dependent upon God. The word blessed means happy. The, the people who, who are joyful and feel good about themselves are the people that are dependent upon God. The world says, no, no it's the tough guys that get ahead. It's the achievers. It's those that push and shove and climb over everyone else to get to the top. That's what makes... And, and if you live like this, you see, as a, as a Christian in the world, you, you, you live dependent upon God, you're going to stand out. You're going to be different. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. That is, they feel sorry about their sin. They admit the fact that they're sinful. They don't try to cover it up. They regret the fact that they've, they've uh, trashed their, their lives and, and others around them because of their sin. They mourn over those things. The world doesn't. They'll never admit that they're wrong. Never admit that they have it. Any need to repent or to, to be forgiven? And if you, if you live that way, if you live the way Jesus has called you to live in the world, you're going to stand out. You're going to be different. Jesus said, blessed are the meek, the non-defensive, those that don't try to protect themselves. They may protect others, but they aren't always looking for a way to defend themselves. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness. The world hungers and thirsts for things and for power and for prestige and for money. Jesus said, no, if you hunger and thirst after righteousness, you'll be different, you'll be distinctive. And that's why he moves from the Beatitudes to the, what someone has called the similitudes. If you live like this, he says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. And actually what he says is, you and you alone are the salt of the world. Christians living Christianly are the only ones that can save society. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. The Bible tells us that. Our own observation confirms it. The world can do nothing to save itself. It's disintegrating all around us. Jesus said, you're like salt. Salt was a preservative in those days. It was used, they salted down their fish and their meat because they didn't have refrigeration. It was the only way to spread the, uh, arrest the spread of corruption. Jesus said, you live like this in your world and you'll arrest the spread of corruption. You'll be light. You'll be salt and, and light. You and you alone are the salvation of the world. You see, that's, that's why the Bible calls us with such a high and holy calling. That's why you have so, so much of the Bible talks about conduct, because it isn't enough just to know God and revel in that relationship. Our relationship to God has to show up in a, in a, in a radically different lifestyle, a different set of values. If it doesn't, we've missed the whole point. And as a matter of fact, if it doesn't, I don't think God wants us to give witness at all. Have you ever thought about the fact that God removed Israel from the land of Canaan when they began to fall apart morally? I have to ask myself the question, why, why didn't he just uh, send the, the Babylonians in to discipline Israel? Why did he take them out of the land? Well, because he didn't want them in the land giving witness to his holiness when they were not a holy people. And I really believe that if we have no desire in our heart to live godly lives, we ought to keep our mouths shut. I, I just assume people think we're moon worshipers or something than Christians. And we're not talking about perfection, because if we are, who of us would qualify? We'd never open our mouths. We're talking about the intent of the heart and the progress that we're making. Are, are we trying, are we really working on our relationship 
with our family, with our children, trying to bridge the generation gap and reach out in love and gather those kids in? Are we really working on our marriage? Are we, are we endeavoring to be honest in our business dealings and our relationships with the business community? Do we have integrity? Or are we unscrupulous in our business practices? See, what, what God is looking for is, is the intent of our heart. And if, we're, if our intention is to live out holy lives and we're growing in grace, then we, we have a ready-made witness because people are going to be drawn to us. It all begins, again, at the center. What are we centering our lives upon? Witness is not a hard and harsh and burdensome thing. Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, and you'll find rest for your soul. Once we discover the key, you see, that witness grows out of worship, and witness grows out of a transformed character as we come to know, to know God and we begin to reflect his character, then witness comes very naturally. So I've never been very excited about classes on techniques. I've taught them, and I think that there are some techniques of evangelism, and I think there are some, some methods that we, that we all ought to be aware of that help us. But the issue is not methodology. It all comes back to the matter of the heart. What do we want? What do we want? If we want God, and if we want to live out his life, then witness will be the most natural thing in the world. Let's pray. Father, a passage like this is almost damning in its implications when we, if we sit down and think about it seriously and realize that we really have nothing to say if, if we do not hunger and thirst after righteousness. But, but somehow, Lord, in all of us, there is a, there's a great desire to know you. We, we long to, to have fellowship with you and to walk with you. And, and we want to respond to that inner urging. We, we want to draw near to you and and we ask that as we do, you would teach us about yourself, your gracious and loving character, your concern for the world, and uh, the way that concern works out in, in, in practical steps of uh, practical loving steps. And that's, we want to follow you in this. We want to walk along with you and learn how best to represent you in the world. We are your ambassadors. We want to represent you well. Thank you for your, your grace that makes it possible. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.